Reading from Genesis 25. This is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, and he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of your red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Esau, to, to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Well, good morning. Well, I well remember the days of when I was falling in love with my wife. Thirty years ago or so, as we began dating... She was living in San Jose. I was in Palo Alto, California. It was about a 20-mile drive, which isn't bad, unless you have to drive it during traffic time. It took me about an hour and a half to meet her after work. But you know what? I was willing to do that because I wanted to get to know her better. I wanted to spend time with her. So I was willing to make that effort to do that. The big picture of the book of Genesis that we began months and months ago and we are working our way through really is the beginning of the story of the entire Bible. So let me just remind you how it began. God created the heavens and the earth and it was good. It was wonderful. And he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. And they walked together with God in the garden and they had fellowship and it was a wonderful thing. But God gave them freedom. 
And they chose to rebel against him. They chose to eat of the forbidden fruit. And at that point, death entered the human race. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. There was a separation from God. A tendency on every human being born since then to say, I don't need you, God. I will run my own life. There's this vast chasm between God and man because of sin. Genesis chapter 3. That's spread to all of us. But immediately God began pursuing us. That story begins right away and continues certainly, especially from the story of Abraham that we have been going through, where in chapter 12, God comes to him and calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees and says, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to all the nations. And in your seed, your descendant, will all the nations of the world be blessed. And so God began to pursue humankind, to go after us, to do what was far harder than sitting in traffic for an hour and a half. He began to pursue us because he created us for relationship with him and he wanted to know us and he wanted us to know him. And so all the rest of the Bible is the story of God's redemptive pursuit of humanity. Going right up to the point in history, the center point in history, 2,000 years after he called Abraham, where Jesus was born on earth and he lived and he died and rose again. And that renewed relationship with God where we could know him was restored and it was spread to all nations. And we are in that redemptive period where the kingdom is expanding to all nations, to all peoples. And we are part of that. We've been called to be part of that. So that's the big picture of what God is doing in the book of Genesis and in the whole scriptures. And his story can't be thwarted. His redemptive purposes can't be messed up by us. He has a plan and he is carrying that out. But God wants us to participate. He wants us to respond to his pursuit. He wants to use us to expand his kingdom by his grace, by his love. So how should we respond to his pursuit? How should we respond to him coming after us so that we might know him and be part of his great plan? Well, one thing I love about the Bible stories, and the one we're looking at today is certainly true of this, is that they are so real. These are people just like us. They struggle in life. They fail in life. They have a hard time trusting God. They make a lot of mistakes. And that's what I love about it because I can relate. That's my life. And it's God's purposes that we might understand that even in our messy lives, God is still pursuing us and wants us to respond. So how should we respond to God in his pursuit of us? Well, I think this story gives us four wonderful principles of how he wants us to respond to him as he pursues us with his redemptive plan. First principle I see in these uh, first few verses, he wants us, like Isaac, to keep praying. Like Isaac, to keep praying. He will respond to our prayers. Now in the story, you see that Isaac is 40 years old. He took Rebekah as his wife, and they longed to have a child. And he begins to pray. 
What you don't see immediately, you don't see till down verse 26, is that he prayed for 20 years that God would provide a child. Now, this was not only something that they longed for as parents, as they longed to have a child to hold and to care for, but actually the very plan of God, the very redemptive plan of God is being threatened. God had promised the seed would come through Abraham, through Isaac, to his seed, his children as well. So God's whole redemptive plan is threatened. And what does Isaac do? He prays. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Makes me think, why did God delay so long, 20 years, in providing a child? Why does God delay so long in our lives sometimes when we pray and long for God to fulfill something in our hearts that we long for, that's a deep part of us, and yet God delays and delays and delays? Why does God delay? I think so often it's because in Isaac's case, so Isaac would learn to pray and keep praying. He delays in our lives so that we will learn to pray and keep praying. We would learn to seek Him. He delays to give us what we long for or even what He's promised us at times because He wants us to learn to keep praying, keep waiting, keep learning to trust Him. And what we see throughout the Scriptures, and I think here as well, is God delights in it when we pray. You see, again, we're created for a relationship with Him and we're created to respond to Him. And so when we turn to Him in prayer, in His pursuit, we are in relationship with Him and we're learning to trust Him and walk with Him. Now imagine, if I'd driven that hour and a half down to San Jose and I got there and knocked on the door and Jeannie said, "Uh, I'm watching a TV show, go away. Well, I would only be able to handle that so many times, right? I have dishes to do. Um, Come back another time. I'm busy. See, God delights when we respond to Him, when we pray, when we keep praying, when we allow the circumstances of life to drive us to our knees so that we learn to develop intimacy with Him and respond to Him. He delights in us being part of His kingdom and knowing Him. Now, I know when we pray, often we feel like, is God even listening? I can't see you. I can't touch you. Are you even hearing what I'm saying, God? We all feel that way at times. But let this passage be an encouragement to you. Keep praying. God is listening. God is hearing. And he delights in it when we pray. Are you struggling in your life over some circumstance? Keep praying. Do you have a wayward child that's breaking your heart? Keep praying praying? Do you have a marriage that you long for God to bring healing in? Keep praying. Do you have sin in your life that you're struggling with? Keep praying. Are you without a job? Do you want a different job? Keep praying. Do you long to be married or have children of your own and you haven't been able to? Keep praying. God will either grant your request in his timing, 20 years in Isaac's case, or he will change your desires 
or he will give you the strength to handle life with your request unfulfilled. But if you don't pray, you won't experience the intimacy with God that he longs for you to experience. So let the circumstances of life drive you to keep praying. How should we respond to the pursuit of God in our lives? First, keep praying. Secondly, keep seeking. He will reveal what you need to know. Keep seeking him in your confusion, like Rebecca. What do we see in Rebecca here? Well, it says God answered him, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. She has children. She's bearing children. Finally, God answered the prayer. What a wonderful thing. And then it says the children struggled together within her. Now, that translation doesn't do it justice, folks. Literally, it's the children were crushing each other in her. The word that's used there is a word that's used in Judges of a lady who drops a millstone off a tower and crushes the head of King Abimelech. I mean, these two were going at it. They were at all-out war within her. And she's going, "Uh, uh, what's going on in here? She says, literally, if this is so, why this me? That's literally what she says. Why this me? (laughs) Why is this happening to me? We prayed for a child and we finally got the answer and this is what you give me? This torture? These kids killing each other inside? Me? It's very descriptive of what their relationship will be obviously outside the womb later on. But for her, it's simply this confusion. God, what are you doing? But notice what she does. So she went to inquire of the Lord. And I expect that was a long process for her. She kept seeking. She kept seeking the Lord. In her confusion, she kept seeking the Lord. And I think the Lord wants us to respond to him in the confusions of life, in the midst of life, that we keep seeking and trust that he will reveal to us what we need to know in the midst of the confusions of life. Why this, me? Lord, I'm trying to follow you. Why this, me? This is a common struggle for all of us. Why does God give us these times of confusion? I think mainly so that we will see that nothing we desire can satisfy our hearts except God alone. Nothing we desire can satisfy our hearts except God alone. And in his pursuit of us, he wants us to understand that. So keep seeking him and he will reveal to you what you need to know to keep walking with him. So I love the way she pursues God. She seeks the Lord. But notice the answer she gets. It's this weird prophecy. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And I'm sure she went, what? (laughs) From the next verse, it appears that she didn't even understand there were twins in her womb because she was surprised. Behold, there's twins coming out. So I don't think she really got the answer, but it was exactly what she needed to begin to understand God's bigger plan, that he had a plan for these children she was about to give birth to. And God may not answer 
your prayers as you seek Him the way you would like Him to, but He will give you exactly what you need to keep walking with Him and be part of His kingdom plan. So keep seeking Him. Keep seeking Him, and He will give you what you need. He will reveal just as much as you need so that you'll be able to keep walking with Him. How should we keep seeking Him? Well, part of it is gathering like this with the body of Christ, hearing the Word of God taught, letting it sink into your life, be reading the Word, seeking the Lord, because that's how He speaks to us, is through His Word and through the body of Christ gathered together. I have a friend, single woman, who has struggled with many years with her singleness. She longs to share her life with a man. She's prayed about it and sought the Lord about it. God has not chosen to take away that desire. But what God has done is reveal himself to her in a way that has expanded her ministry as she has seen the Lord meet her need and give her the strength to walk through the pain of that unfulfilled desire, that singleness. And God has given her great ministry. Why? Because she has continued to seek the Lord. Now this, uh, as you look at verse 25 and 26, you see the kids that came out. Esau was so hairy, red hair. He was ugly. But it's very descriptive of his character later on because he's like a beast. He really is. He just wants what he wants right now like an animal. Jacob is hanging on to his brother's heel, (laughs) which in Hebrew is a picture of one who is a deceiver, one who hangs on to get his own way. And that's descriptive of Jacob's character as well. He's a manipulator. But here's the amazing thing. Despite who he is, God continues to use him as part of his kingdom plan. And that's the third principle. Keep praying, keep seeking, and third, keep trusting like Jacob. He even will use our failures. Keep trusting. Now, as you read this passage, you see some crazy things. You see favoritism in the parents, right? Isaac likes Esau because game was in his mouth. That's literal. Because he liked the taste of wild game and therefore he liked Esau better. Folks, that's a dysfunctional father. And Rebecca just liked Jacob better, probably because he stayed in the tents and she could relate to him better. Parental favoritism. And then you see Esau and Jacob living out their lives. Esau, all he cares about is, I'm starving, give me this food now. And literally it's, give me a gulp of that red stuff. And the word for gulp there is used outside the Bible to use, it's used of animals devouring their food. Let me devour some of that stuff. I'm hungry now. And Jacob goes, oh, you know, I, I can use this. <laughs> and he says, first sell me your birthright. And he's a manipulator. He's out for his own ends. But Esau is just worried about pleasure. I want this now. I don't care. I'm just hungry. So yeah, you can have my birthright. He swears to it. I mean, these are dysfunctional, messed up people. They are. And I don't know about you, 
But that's encouraging to me. That these are the very people God is using to fulfill his plan. God uses dysfunctional people and families to fulfill his greater purposes. Isaac ignores Jacob. Jacob is clearly the chosen one by God. But Jacob ends up being rejected by his father, but chosen by God. Some of you have deep father wounds and you feel like because of the pain of that, God can't use me? Wrong. You may have been rejected by a parent, but you've been chosen by God. You've been pursued by God. Jesus died for you. And therefore, you can be part of his kingdom as well. As I say, this is a huge encouragement to me because my tendency is to look at my own failings, my own sin, and think God can't use me. I've got to get my act together before I can be useful for his kingdom. I look at my life, my deep insecurities. You know, I can get up here and I can speak to a crowd of people as long as I got to prepare and I get to be in control. But when I'm in a group where I have to spontaneously speak up, I get terrified that I might get humiliated or made fun of. I might look bad. See, I have deep insecurities. God keeps revealing to me how deeply selfish I am, how too often ministry is about me rather than about him. And I get appalled at the things I see in my own heart and I think, feel like a failure and I think, God, you can't use me. And yet, This story encourages me because it's people like me and you that God uses for his kingdom. There are no other kinds of people. Okay? (laughs) So we're what he's stuck with. But that's his plan. He uses dysfunctional people to fulfill his purposes. Isn't that awesome? Thank you, Lord. Praise you. So keep trusting. Jacob isn't trusting God right here, but as he goes on, he learns to trust him. And so I encourage you to keep trusting. God will use even your failures. He not only uses us in spite of our failures, but he looks at our weaknesses, and those very weaknesses get used by him to help us connect with other people, to help us depend on him more, to help us see that it's in our weakness that we are made strong because he uses those. Keep trusting because God will use even your weaknesses. Now, that's not an excuse, folks, to just, oh, then I can just sin it up. No. Keep struggling against those things, as we'll see in a moment. That's important. But just realize when you do fail, God can still use you. Keep trusting. Don't give up. He uses even our failures. And then finally, fourth principle, Esau is a negative example. Like Esau, don't despise your birthright. The end of the passage says, Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Imagine giving up your birthright for lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau 
despised his birthright. To despise means to treat lightly, like it doesn't even matter. I could care less about that. It's a word that's used of David when Nathan confronted him about Bathsheba's sin, and Nathan said, Why have you despised the word of the Lord, David? It's used of actually Goliath looking at David and despising him. It's like, this guy's nothing. We despise our birthright when we treat it like nothing, like it doesn't matter. What is our birthright? Well, the birthright in Esau's day was the place of privilege. If you were the firstborn, you had the birthright. That meant you had the right of succession. You were the, you were the one who would receive your father's inheritance. Um, you'd e- receive at least a double inheritance, but you were also the chosen one to take the responsibility for the family business. You were given a place of privilege. You were given special rights, and you were given the responsibility to care for the rest of the family. Well, what is our birthright as born-again believers? Well, it's even far greater. We are chosen to be children of the King. We are adopted in. We're given a special place of privilege. We are told we will reign with Him. We are given forgiveness for all our sins, past, present, and future. We are called to be citizens of His kingdom. We are given access to the throne room any moment without restriction. We are given an intercessor in Jesus Christ who pleads before the Father for any sin we do is forgiven immediately because he intercedes and says, I died for that. We are given the Holy Spirit to empower us and lead us and guide us and teach us into truth. We are given the privilege of being part of the kingdom of God and helping him expand the kingdom of God. And I could go on and on all morning, but we don't have time. But our birthright is incredible. But the encouragement to us is don't despise your birthright. In fact, the author of Hebrews picks up this very point and says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. And listen to verse 16. And let there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Sobering. What does it mean for us to despise our birthright? It means to take it lightly. You know, as I show up and knock on the door, if Jeannie were to say, go away, I don't care about you. I don't want to spend time with you. We despise our birthright when God comes knocking and we ignore him. Let me give you five different ways I think we despise our birthright. First, I think we despise our birthright when, like Esau, we put pleasure above God. Personal pleasure, personal comfort above God. When God comes and says, I want you to reach out to this person in love. I want you to come home from work and serve your family. I want you, and you go, you know what? I know I should do that, but I'm just too tired. I deserve some time vegging out. I deserve this pleasure. 
We despise our birthright when we do that. When, like Esau, we put pleasure above God. Secondly, we despise our birthright, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, when we choose immorality over obedience. When we know something is wrong, and we say, God, I know you think this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. I am going to go ahead and get on this chat room and have contact with an old boyfriend. Even though I'm married, I'm going to look at porn. I'm going to flirt at work. I'm going to, I mean, you could go on and on. When you choose immorality over obedience, you are despising your birthright. We despise our birthright thirdly when we have this attitude of cheap grace, when we treat grace lightly. When we say things like, as I had a friend tell me not long ago, yeah, I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. God will forgive me, so I'm going to do it and I'll get forgiveness later. You know, God's a forgiving God. That's despising our birthright because it's ignoring the incredible cost it took for Jesus to die for your sin. That's despising our birthright. Fourth, we despise our birthright. And listen carefully. This is, may step on some toes, but I just think we need to hear this. We despise our birthright when we have a good consumer attitude towards our faith. An attitude that says, this church where, or this group or whatever better make me feel good. Uh, we choose things by how they make us feel, by the pleasure they provide. When we say, well, I'll go to this part of the service, but not that part, because this makes me feel good and this doesn't. I like this better than that, so I'll only go to part of the service, or I won't go to that church because it doesn't make me feel as good or whatever. When we shop around based on what, how things make us feel, We despise our birthright. Instead of having an attitude of everything is a gift and I get to be with other believers. I don't deserve it. I I deserve to be on my own. But I get to come and learn and hear the word of the Lord and let it change my life and change my attitude and change my worldview. And I get to read the word and I get to be with other believers and etc. When we have a consumerist attitude towards our faith, I think we despise our birthright. Fifth, I think we despise the word of the Lord when we put money or sex or power or work above him. In other words, idolatry. We say, God, yeah, you're great, but this is more important to me. I need this to have life. That's idolatry. It might be another relationship with another person. And when we choose idolatry, choose idols over God, we are despising our birthright. Hebrews 12, which I just read, summarizes it this way. Don't live a godless life like Esau. What's a godless life? Living as though God really doesn't matter. Oh, you go through the motions. But in the real deep choices of your life, you live a godless life. I live a godless life. That's despising our birthright. It's a great warning here because notice how the passage ended in Hebrews. 
Esau wanted to repent, but it was too late. His heart was too hard. Turn now, in other words. You may not get a chance later. Sobering, sobering words. You see, God is faithfully pursuing us because he loves us and he wants relationship with us. He is seeking us because he delights in us and he wants us to know him. How should we respond to his pursuit? Keep praying, even when it's confusing and it seems like he's not listening. Keep seeking. He will reveal to you what you need, but be in the word so you can hear his voice. Keep trusting, even when you fail, because he can use even those failures. But be careful that you don't despise your birthright and treat it lightly. You see, our choices do matter. Esau had the birthright, but he rejected it. Jacob, his life doesn't look any better than Esau's. In some ways, it looks worse. But he learned to trust God through the failures of life. And that should be an encouragement to us that even in our failures, he keeps pursuing us, and what he wants is us to respond to him, to trust him over time. I hope you and I will choose not to be Esau's, but to be Jacob's.